Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 14. We're in Acts chapter 14 today, which is an important day in the life of our church because immediately following our worship service, our congregation will have the opportunity to elect officers if they so choose. And so our leadership thought that it would be good for us to spend some time, some extended time in God's Word, examining the question, what does the Bible say about how a church is to be governed? What does the Bible have to say about how a church should be governed? On a personal note, I suppose that this sermon could also be entitled, Why I Am a Presbyterian, Confessions of a Lifelong Southern Baptist. I'll give you the short answer to that question. The form of government that the Bible describes is Presbyterian. Even many Baptist churches are beginning to set up their church government in this way. And if you'll lean forward, I will whisper to you the secret why. Because it's the most biblical. Let me show you from God's word now. I'm going to read Acts 14 verses 21 to 23 and I'll pray for us in just a moment. Let me put these verses into some context. In Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas are on their first missionary journey. And we will read that they preach the gospel, they make disciples, and then notice what they do in every city before they leave that city. Be listening for that as I read God's word, Acts chapter 14, verses 21 to 23. Hear now God's word. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord whom they had believed. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Surely one of the reasons you have preserved it these two millennia is so that we would have an indication of how you intend your church to be structured and to be governed. Would you show us that now through your word, even through the preaching of your word, through the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher? For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, in Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas are on their first missionary journey. The Christian church is just beginning, and it's beginning to spread. What is it that Paul and Barnabas do? What do you see them do there? Verse 21 says they preached the gospel, that they made many disciples. Check, we do that in this place. That's something that we want to be all about. Verse 22 says they strengthened the souls of the disciples, which we define as followers of Jesus, that they encouraged them to continue in the faith. Check, we do that here. That's a priority for us. And then in verse 23, notice, what did they do before they left? Verse 23, they appointed elders for them in every church. What they did every place that they went is that they appointed elders to govern in every church. This was Paul's normal practice, his standard operating procedure, his modus operandi, however you want to say it, his, his normal practice was to establish a group of elders in each church shortly after that church began. 
Not only did Paul and Barnabas do it in practice, it was also their clear teaching. We read in Titus chapter 1, when Paul is writing to Titus, he had left him on the island of Crete. And in Titus 1 and verse 5, we read where Paul wrote to him, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Appoint elders in every town. Paul gave a similar instruction to Timothy who was in Ephesus and you can read in 1 Timothy chapter 3 many verses Paul says these are the kinds of people you are looking for to be in leadership of a church and then he gives qualifications for elders and for deacons. James also assumes that a church will have elders Because when James writes a general letter to many churches scattered throughout the world, he writes in James chapter 5 and verse 14, he writes, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, you might have a lot of questions about that verse, and there's more than I can unpack in this time together. Let me just say a couple of things. First, notice that when James writes to these churches, many of whom he had never even been to, his assumption was that all the members of that church had elders that they could call upon if they got sick. That's just his assumption. They're going to be elders in every church, consistent with what we've seen in Paul And what Paul and Barnabas did, what Titus did in Crete. Secondly, just let me deal with it very quickly. He calls them to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And you might wonder, do our elders do that here? And the answer to that question is yes. In my tenure here, we have prayed for and anointed with oil several people who have requested uh, people with neck and back issues people someone with a brain tumor one time Uh, we've done it for people who are struggling with anxiety and depression that is something that we do here because of James chapter 5 and verse 14 and you may think yourself well the elders have never come and laid hands on me and prayed for me and anointed me with oil and my question to you would be have you called them and asked them to do so James 5 and 14, if you want to put it back on the screen, read it very carefully. It says that if you are sick, that that person is to call for them to come, call for the elders to come and to pray over them. So you are aware now that's something the scripture teaches, and our elders are willing, if you are sick, call them. Let me keep going. The Apostle Peter also assumes a church will have elders. In 1 Peter, when he is writing a general letter to churches spread throughout Asia Minor, and we're talking about in the 60s AD, within 30 years of Pentecost, Peter assumes all of those churches have the same form of church government. Look what he says in 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Hear now God's word. Peter writes, So I exhort the elders among you. Notice, he just assumes all these churches have elders. And he's writing this letter to the church that says, I want to address the elders, because if there's a church, I know there are elders there. He says, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, 
not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. He goes on to say in verse 5, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. We'll talk about that in a moment. A couple of observations here. Number one, Peter assumes that all churches have elders. Look what he says that they do. In verse 2, he says elders are to shepherd the flock. Now, that doesn't communicate as well in our day because we don't have as many men who are in our church whose profession is to watch over sheep and shepherd them, right? The metaphor doesn't mean as much to us, but think about what that means. A shepherd does what? He protects the sheep from predators and from danger. He leads them to where they can find food and water so that they can eat and keeps them alive and nourishes them so that they are sustained. Peter is saying spiritually that's what elders do for members of the church. Protect them from predators by preaching the truth, by praying for them, nourishing them. Making sure that they get the living bread. Making sure that they feed on the body and blood of Christ. That is what elders are to do. Exercising oversight, it says. The scripture says it a couple places. Sometimes oversight over the church, the affairs of the church. And we'll look at that in a minute. First Timothy 5 and verse 17. Other places it says overseeing the souls of men. Watching over people's souls. That's what elders are to do. So the New Testament is clear and consistent. Whether we're talking about Paul and Barnabas in practice, whether we're talking about Timothy and Titus as they were instructed to do, whether we're talking about James and Peter, the New Testament is clear and consistent. All churches have elders that shepherd the flock. And I want you to notice something as you go back. I'm sure you pour over these sermons afterwards and search the scripture to be sure what I'm saying is correct, like the Bereans. As you spend that time this week, notice something. In every place where the scripture talks about elders being in authority over the church, notice that it is always plural, elders. The scripture teaches what we call a plurality of elders. You never have just one. And there's wisdom in that, isn't there? Think about it with me. Today we see many churches where there is one dynamic leader, usually with a strong personality, who calls all the shots. And how has that worked as a church government? Not very well. It can lead to abuse. One person can be led astray. Are we guaranteed to not ever get into abusive situations or be led astray if we have multiple elders? No, but the odds go down. Our very theology says that we are all sheep, that we are all prone to wander, and that is true of elders as well. That's why in wisdom, the scripture says you have more than one elder. You have elders, plural, and it's always plural. It protects us from the danger. Now, got to ask this question. Close the loop on uh, elders from the beginning, from the introduction that I gave you. Does anyone know what the Greek word is for elder? That's <laughs> my favorite part. Does anybody know? Of course, yes, presbyteros, right? 
In fact, we get the word Presbyterian from the Greek word for elder. The word Presbyterian simply means governed by elders. That's all it means. So if you are looking for a church that has a government, that is a church that is governed according to the New Testament pattern, then you, my friend, are looking for a Presbyterian church. (gasps) I know. It was shocking to me, too. But that's what the Scripture teaches. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, well, what about deacons? The church I grew up in, the one I grew up in, it was all deacons. They did everything. There was a pastor, one pastor, but the deacons made all the decisions. They had the authority. They were the ones that were ruling. What about deacons? Where do they fit into all this? Great question. Turn with me to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. Hear now God's word. Now in these days... When the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty." But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set up before the apostles, and they prayed and laid hands on them. Again, there's a lot going on here. Uh, Back in 2019, in the fall, you can look back. I preached an entire sermon just on those six verses. I can't preach a whole sermon on it now, but let me just point out a couple of things. What's going on? First, widows are being neglected. Okay? The, the, uh, The Greek widows, the Hellenists, are saying, hey, the Greek widows are being left out in the daily distribution, and the Hebrew widows, the Jewish ones, seem to be getting taken care of in the daily distribution. What would you distribute daily? Probably food. But whatever these folks needed to survive, the church is taking care of widows. And the Hellenists, the Greeks, are saying, hey, our widows are being left out, and the Hebrews, the the Jewish widows, seem to be taken care of. And we look, and there's this one group of leaders that are focused on prayer and ministry of the word. Now, i got to tell you, my temptation as an elder would be, well, if these widows are being neglected, they're not going to be today because I'm going to take off my coat, if you can believe that happens sometimes, and roll up my sleeves, and I'm going to be sure they're taken care of today. And that is not what these men say. This one group of leaders that already exists in the church says it would be, do you see it? Wrong. It is not right for us to neglect prayer and the ministry of the word. There should be one group of people in the church that that is their exclusive responsibility is prayer and ministry of the word. It would not be right for us to neglect that. So they called together the the full group of disciples, the full number of them, and they said, listen, we want you to select who these next group of people who will do this job So select from your number, so these deacons are selected 
by the full number of disciples for them from their number, and they're ordained, they're set apart with the laying on of hands in prayer, and these men were to take care of the physical needs of the widows. Now, you may be saying, it doesn't say deacon anywhere in the text. Where does he get deacon from this? Good, you should be asking that question. If you look in verse 2 where it says, it is not right that we should give up the preaching of the word to serve tables. That sounds harsh to us. But you need to understand that that word to serve, diakonos. Noun form is a servant, right? There should be a group of people to serve, to deacon. You can use it as a, a verb in Greek. So there should be a group of people to serve, to deacon, so get the picture. There's a lot more going on here. I don't have time to deal with it all. But just get the picture, right? There are two groups of leaders with two different functions. One group is focused on what we may say more spiritual things. Ministry of the word, prayer, shepherding the flock, exercising oversight over people's souls and oversight over the affairs of the church. And that group says, hey... We can't neglect those things, but we want people to be taken care of. So there should be another group of leaders that are raised up by the church in order to take care of the stuff, the practical day-to-day things, to take care of benevolence, to watch over the church's material things. Be careful. Don't say that the deacon is not an office of a spiritual nature, because it is. What are the requirements in Acts 6? Men full of the Holy Spirit. Men who are full of wisdom. It is a spiritual office, but they deal with more material things. The day-to-day things people need to survive. So in the scripture, we see these two groups of leaders with two different functions. And this is the clear pattern we see in the New Testament. In Philippians 1, when Paul writes to the church at Philippi, he addresses the letter to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the elders and deacons. That's how he addresses the letter. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, when Paul writes to Timothy on Ephesus and says, hey, you need to appoint leaders in the church, he then gives qualifications of elders in verses 1 through 7 and qualifications for deacons in verses 8 through 13. There are two separate groups. So the clear pattern in the New Testament is that there are two groups of leaders. One, elders, focused on teaching the word, praying, shepherding, keeping watch over people's souls, being overseers of souls, making sure no one distorts the truth and leads the disciples astray, Paul says in Acts chapter 20 to the Ephesian elders. 1 Timothy 5 and verse 17 says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. I had to tell you as my 14 years here, you've heard me many times say, and therefore is worthy of double honor. Usually of someone who is a graduate of Sanford University or of the University of Georgia or Covenant Theological Seminary, or some law school someplace. And you wouldn't believe the number of men in officer training who says, oh my gosh, I thought that was just a joke. That's actually in the scripture. Well, the double honor part is, not the other part. And what the scripture says is that those who rule well, your translation of the New American Standard says those who lead well, The NIV says those who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor. So part of the job as an elder is to direct the affairs of the church. 
There is a separate group called deacons. They are servants. It is a spiritual office because they are men full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom and have a good reputation, but they serve diakonos. They serve the physical needs of the congregation. They attend to physical needs. Distribution of food amongst widows. 1 Timothy 3 and verse 8 says they should not be greedy for dishonest gain. So they seem to have some responsibility over the finances of the church. They take care of any of the material things that the church has. You should know that the New Testament never gives deacons ruling authority over the church, something that is reserved for elders. If you don't have any elder, if you don't have any deacons, the elders do all of these responsibilities. You can have a church without deacons, you cannot have a church without elders. Nor are deacons ever required to teach the scripture. Deacons can teach, they're not required to teach. Elders must be able to teach. Now, that's a lot of information I've given you. I want us to think about this information for a minute and process it. And as I think about it and as I process this information and I see what the New Testament teaches, I see that this is a great structure and I see a lot of wisdom here. Let me tell you why. Because in my time in the church, I have learned that there are spiritual realities in the church, but there are also physical realities. You care what the thermostat is set on right now. You care that there's not a leak and rain's not coming in on your head. The people who work for the church care that they get a check. There are physical realities to life in the church, and there are spirit. we got to have a place. We need a building. We need a place to meet. There are spiritual realities as well. We have sin. We have struggles. We have the effects of sin in our lives. So there are physical and spiritual realities of life in the church. And I don't know what your experience with the church is, but let me tell you mine. Some churches tend to be really good at one of those things and not the other. I have an opinion about Redeemer Church. I'll share it with you over lunch if you want to hear it. But some churches are really good with the physical things. That church is a well-oiled machine. It runs well. They use their resources very efficiently. Administratively, they're outstanding. But sometimes, churches that are really good with those physical things can lack vitality. Sometimes they're spiritually dead. There are other churches that I think have a really good grasp on spiritual things, but we're not going to let go of the gospel. We're going to love people well. When am I going to get the electronic newsletter? I don't know, sometimes on Thursday, sometimes on Friday, sometimes on Saturday, some weeks not at all. You laugh because you've lived in a church like that. What if a church could be good at both of those things? What if there was a church with spiritual vitality who loved people well, but also was a well-oiled machine that used the resources that God gave them in the most efficient, most effective way to get the most bang for our buck to do the most for the kingdom? What if you could have both? That's the ideal. That's our goal here at Redeemer Church. And that is the form of government that the Bible describes and sets out and what we aspire to in this place. 
Now, that's big picture and theoretical. So what? What difference does this make for you? Let me tell you three observations about that, and I'll sit down. What difference does it make in your life? Number one, maybe you're here today and you are not a member of this church. Maybe you're a member of another church or maybe you're not a member of any church at all. I would hope that this information would help you choose a church. Because if you are looking for a church that is set up the way the Bible describes a church should be structured, then I hope you have a better idea of the kind of church you're looking for. If you're here and you are a member of this church, I hope you have a greater understanding of why things are set up the way that they are, and that you have a better understanding of what we aspire to, of where our strengths and weaknesses are as judged by the scripture and not just our preferences. That's one way it helps us. Number two, if you're a member of this church, I hope you're staying for the election today, and I would hope that this would help you make a decision in the election today. Because we've answered the question, why are there two offices? Because that's what we see in the scripture. What's the difference? We've described the differences. Are these nominees right for the job that they've been nominated for? Hopefully you have the information now to make an informed decision. Number three, I want to say this in love, but I want to say it very directly. This information also tells us why you should be a member of a church. Here's why. Think of the structure of our service. We had a call to worship where we all declared in Psalm 100, we are God's people, the sheep of his pasture. Then, in our confession of sin, we read Isaiah 53, and we all affirmed, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. We confess that is our tendency. So if those two things are true, if our tendency is to go astray, then what that means is that you need a shepherd. Now I understand that the chief shepherd is the Lord Jesus. And I understand that he gave his life, that he poured out his blood for you. And that is true. And that's what makes you a child of God and adopted into his family. But once you are a follower of Jesus, a blood-bought lamb of the Lord Jesus Christ, life in his family looks like life with shepherds, elders, and deacons. Jesus has ascended into heaven and is sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And he has sent his spirit. The spirit, Acts 20, raises up leaders in the church. And it's the spirit who makes them overseers of your soul. So if you just want to follow Jesus, but you don't want to be a member of his family and follow the structure that Jesus has set out for his people, listen, I love you, but you are in sin. You are disregarding God's plan for your life. And we have had people who come here and say, I'm not going to submit to any man. I just submit to Jesus. Well, submitting to Jesus would be submitting to elders and deacons, number one. Number two, that's a clear violation of Scripture. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. The writer of the Hebrews says, Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority. Because they keep watch over your souls as those who must give an account. Do this 
so that their work will be a joy and not a burden, for that will be of no benefit to you. If you're not a member of a church, listen, I know we live in a society we don't join things, we don't commit. If you're a follower of Jesus, you need to commit to have elders and deacons in your life. God knows you. He knows what you need. He knows that you are prone to wander. And in his grace and in his goodness, he has provided leaders to help you stay on the path that he has for you. Listen to me. I know that some of you are hesitant to join a church because you have been hurt by some of the very leaders that I'm talking about. I understand that. And I know that that makes it hard. And I know that might make you slower to commit. And we should be wise about who we submit to as a leader. I want you to hear me say that. But I say to people all the time, listen, if you don't trust this group of leaders here, if you don't want to submit to them, I understand. But you need to find a group of leaders you can submit to. Because it is not an option for a follower of Jesus just to say, I'm not going to submit to anybody. Because the scripture clearly calls us to submit. So listen to me. Jesus knows your pain. He meets you in your hurt. That verse in Hebrews 13 that I just said, those people who have abused you or haven't treated you the right way, Hebrews 13 says they will have to give an account to God for how they shepherd your souls. And I want you to know the leadership here takes that very seriously. That we do what we do with fear and trembling, knowing that we will have to give an account to God for the way that we shepherd your soul. So I call you. Submitting to officers is God's design for the people of God. Let's not reject God's design just because there have been some abuses of God's design. Let's pray and ask God to help us to submit to what he calls us to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We are fearful of trusting you and submitting to you who are perfect. So surely we have trouble submitting to imperfect leaders in your church. Give us grace. Extend your mercy. And then help us to walk in your ways. Thank you that you give us leaders in the church to provide for us, to provide for our spiritual needs, to provide for us materially. Thank you for these leaders. I pray for the leaders of this church. And I pray that they would be faithful in doing the things that you have called them to do, knowing that they will give an account to you. I pray for the members of this church that they would trust their leadership That they would be forgiving and gracious knowing that every leader is imperfect and will let them down. The only one who will not is the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.